The third case was presented by Dr. Richard Finn as an example of the use of TACE, a critical and commonly used local treatment strategy. One major research question is whether this important treatment modality can be enhanced by the addition of a second local or systemic therapy. The group noted a JAMA paper in April by Chang et al. reporting a randomized trial demonstrating encouraging results with a combination of radiofrequency ablation with TACE and the accompanying editorial by Zhu and Abu Alpha concluded, quote, The exact role for TACE RFA in the treatment of patients with unresectable HCC remains a controversial and unresolved issue, similar to the situation for many of the interventional-based therapies. For patients with early-stage disease, either surgery or RFA will remain the initial treatment choice, and the recent approval of serafinib has provided a new treatment option for advanced HCC. A logical extension would be studies to evaluate the potential additive benefit offered by the complementary treatment modalities, such as targeted agents in combination with either TACE or RFA. However, adding to the complexity of evaluating these approaches will be the potential continued approval of new systemic therapies for treating unresectable HCC, end quote. The think tank group also noted encouraging data from a presentation at the 2008 GI Cancer Symposium, a.k.a. ASCO-GI, of a Phase two study by Cabrera et al. evaluating the role of serafinib in combination with local regional therapy with TACE, or TAE, transarterial embolization. The encouraging findings are being followed up in ongoing other studies, a number of which are specifically evaluating TACE plus serafinib. Dr. Finn's patient typifies the potential ups and downs of TACE. This is a 75-year-old gentleman with hepatitis C. In generally good health, who has a history of hepatitis, a distant prostate cancer, and type 2 diabetes, presented with pain. On imaging, was found to have a very large tumor in the right lobe, as well as a smaller lesion in the left lobe. Just diffuse right upper quadrant pain? Right. How long had he had it? He had had it for about two months. It's actually what brought him to the emergency room. He did have some weight loss, although I'd say his ECOG performance status was about one. And the prostate cancer was It was okay. in remission. And did he know he had hepatitis C? Had he been followed for it, or this all came no, up? No, he, he did not know he had hepatitis C. So basically, he was a person with prostate cancer and diabetes who developed pain right upper quadrant, went to the emergency room, found out he had hepatitis C and hepatoma. Right. Unfortunately, not an uncommon presentation. So what did you see? So he was staged, had no macrovascular or lymphovascular invasion. He had no evidence of extrahepatic disease. He was well compensated. His platelets were 136, so not significant portal hypertension. Bilirubin was normal, AFP was elevated, INR was normal. He came to me having had a biopsy prior to this, although I don't think I would have referred him for a biopsy in this clinical scenario. Maybe you can talk about the imaging. As a gentleman with a large spleen, a cirrhotic liver, what we like to call the bird's beak at UCLA in the left lobe, that pointy left lobe, and a very large tumor involving much of the right lobe. What was his state of mind and his life situation at 75? Was he active? What was his he life He was fairly life? active, but living with his daughter, but was carrying out his activities of daily living independently. And so he came in already knowing the diagnosis. He came in knowing the diagnosis, but not perhaps the gravity of the diagnosis. And what about the pain? How severe was it? Was he on medication? He was requiring Vicodin, so some low-dose narcotics. So I'll start with you, Dr. O'Neill. What would you be thinking about in this situation? Yeah, I would consider chemoembolization first for this type of patient. Can you talk about why? Again, someone with open portal veins, 
does have multifocal tumor and fairly large, but would be safe to embolize. I think when we sort of discuss survival data, the scale is actually much different for patients we consider for embolization than it is for, say, the SHARP study. On the SHARP study, we're talking about several months, but when you look at many studies of chemoembolization in patients who are eligible for it, you start to look at numbers more in the 12 to 24-month median survival. Dr. Geshwin? I would exactly agree. This is the prime target, the prime territory for chemoembolization. It's a patient who has a good performance status, liver function okay, portal vein open, large tumor, can't do anything else. This is really the patient that would benefit most from chemoembolization. Dr. Thomas? Yeah, and I'm probably the conservative one of the group when it comes to taste, but I definitely would offer taste to this patient. And you also can actually alleviate symptoms. Sometimes some of the, well, this gentleman is a pretty good performance status, but for people who have what you think are some tumor-related symptoms, maybe fatigue, anorexia, etc., taste clearly kills tumor. It's a palliative treatment as well. One of the options when we polled the faculty about this case that came up was taste followed by serafinib. Any thoughts on that? I sure. wouldn't because I like to see there's a lot of interest in doing trials of that. And but you wouldn't do it off study? Probably not. And I would maximize taste yeah, first. Absolutely. Try to squeeze Would you as wait much. for progression to start serafinib or maybe when the patient stabilizes, go for it? No, I would, again, try to maximize what I can get from taste. Now, I would also, I would not really start serafinib until the patient did not have another option. So, for example, that patient may very well be able to be essentially downstage. Sometimes you can get dramatic shrinkage with a lesion like that. And then I often ask, now is this patient a potential surgical candidate? Or sometimes you downstage them and they can get IMRT radiation to it. What do you think about those strategies, Dr. Chody? I think those are all good. I actually I selected taste followed by serafinib. There are no data now supporting taste combined with serafinib. But we're actually exploring that possibility in the context of cooperative trials of combining taste with serafinib in cases such as this. ECOG has a protocol that's currently under development, but I think outside of a trial, I agree that I would focus on local regional chemoembolization first, complete that therapy, and then consider systemic therapy, serafinib, even prior to progression. So what happened with the patient, Dr. Finn? So he underwent chemoembolization with the initial debate whether he should get serafinib instead of local regional control, but I think there was enough data that he would tolerate the tastes well. So we went with tastes. He recovered from that after about four to six weeks. He had a post-taste syndrome, which lingered a little longer. Post-taste syndrome? What was that? Typically, we see that in some patients to variable extent, anorexia, nausea, low-grade fever, elevated bilirubin or transaminitis. He was in the hospital for three or four days. He was admitted for that? We usually admit patients at least overnight, and often they're in there for 24 to 48 hours, depending on their PO intake. How long after the taste did he develop this? Well, he developed it right away, and his lingered a little bit. He wasn't in the hospital the entire time, but until he got back to his baseline, it was at least four to six weeks. Four to six weeks. Dr. Geshwin, how typical or atypical is that? Atypical. Even with a tumor of this size? 90% of the patients are discharged the day after. It's exceedingly rare that they need to get to stay for a second day. 
And I totally agree with what they experience, but usually they tolerate that well enough that they can stay home. What's the mechanism? Is it like tumor necrosis or what's going on? Well, the fever, yes. That's tumor necrosis. I think there is some degree of embolization, you know, that so-called post-embolization syndrome that really nobody really understands and nobody was able to describe, at least biologically. But yeah, I mean, the liver takes a hit, especially the larger the tumor, the more likely there would be a larger hit to the liver. So all these things are taking place and you can certainly have nausea and vomiting. In fact, we also have now evidence that the systemic side effects of chemobolization are much more pronounced than originally thought because most people think that it's local regional therapy, but there's a lot more side effects that are systemic as a result of the chemotherapy probably seeping out into the systemic circulation. The chemotherapy, that's yeah. interesting. I mean, did you yeah. see cytopenias? Yes. We see bone marrow depression. Yeah. No, he did not, but occasionally we also see alopecia. That yes. is uncommon. That's about 50. Really? Yeah. Alopecia. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So did this man have to be hydrated intravenously? Or? No, he was managed at home for But I mean, when he was in the hospital. Oh, yeah, yeah. He got intravenous fluid, a PCA, to control his pain. So he has his procedure, and then when did he start looking sick? A few hours or? It's usually 12 to 24 hours after the procedure, although it can delay and max at maybe 48 hours. We give all our patients prophylactic antibiotics after the procedure, usually Cipro and Flagyl. And it was four to six weeks before he was kind of back to baseline. Right. What happened with the pain? His pain got better. He went off pain meds? He went off pain medication, and eventually we did another chemoembolization on him. It sounds like it wasn't necessarily that easy. No, no, it was not. He was a tough guy and was a very compliant patient willing to proceed again. But there are certainly patients with that experience who would say, don't do that to me again. So he has this. Did you re-image him at that point? He was re-imaged at about six weeks. He had a good response in the treated part of the tumor, and the plan was to do it again. So you presented the option of doing it again? Yeah. And you did it again? And he did it again. And he was okay? Was he ready to go into this whole thing again? Yeah, and he did better with the second procedure. Did he have to stay in the hospital? Again, routinely we keep them 24 hours. He was there about 48 hours this time. And where is he right now now? What's going on? He's now almost a year out without need for any further treatment. We talked about serafinib with him, but he was doing well after his second taste, and he was comfortable with observation. What's his quality of life like? I think it's pretty high. How typical or atypical is this story that the man's done well for a year, and he's no pain meds again? No pain medication. Okay, so he sounds like he's had a useful response. Is that the routine in this kind of patient? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. How often do you see people who don't have this kind of response and need therapy, you know, maybe a few months later? Failure, usually about 20%. 20%. And again, your experience, Dr. O'Neill, is this something that you kind of would have predicted would have happened? Yeah, I think if you look, just combining sort of various measures of response, the clinical benefit from chemoembolization in well-selected patients is very high. So, Dr. Geshwin, can you kind of go through... Again, for a doc in practice who asked you, well, what's this procedure? What do you do it? Why do you do it? Sort of the basics of chemoembolization. Chemoembolization 101. 101 in three minutes. <laughs> in three minutes. Well, yeah. So it's very similar to a cardiac cath procedure. So the patient comes in to the NGO suite and access the groin into the common femoral artery. Then we thread the catheter into the superior mesenteric artery and the celiac axis. We do visceral arteriogram to document and delineate the anatomy and the patency of the portal vein. And then we thread either microcatheters or something even smaller in close proximity to the tumor if necessary. And then we inject the mixture of lapidol, this poppy seed oil, mixed with the chemotherapy first, usually in a ratio of one to one. So we create an emulsion between the chemotherapy and the lapidol. And then we follow that with some embolic material, typically 
basically what we do in the US now is the embosphere, which is a particle that is very calibrated, so it's precise. And so you know that the particle size will actually match the vessel size in terms of the embolization. And typically we use about a vial of this embolization material to slow down and reduce the blood flow. And we do that in a very reproducible manner because we actually can count the heartbeats and uh, how long it takes for the contrast column to actually clear. And typically it's between two and five heartbeats that we're looking for. And once we achieve that, then we stop. And then we perform a post-chemobilization CT without contrast to look at the deposition of lipidol because it's radio-opaque. And then we admit the patients. So we take care, we admit the patients to interventional radiology, and then we watch them for 24 hours, usually send them home at that time. And then they come back three weeks later for an MRI. I have to admit, when I first heard about it, I thought it was kind of a strange idea. You know, the embolization made sense, but the chemo part seemed kind of strange, actually. But I think there are randomized trials showing that it's not just the embolization, that it's the chemo too, correct? Well, that's a million-dollar question. I mean, it's never been shown again that the addition of chemotherapy is, in fact, beneficial. The only study that suggested that was the Lovett study, where they showed that chemobilization was superior to blend embolization. But I think, again, there is many, many ways of doing blend embolization, and I think that's conceptually is very different. If you do blend embolization from a proximal location, it's equivalent to a surgical ligation. And that is very different from doing a distal embolization like they do at Sloan Kettering, which is where they use very, very small particles and they saturate the tumor with these particles. So again, conceptually, I mean, I think all these things are very important to keep in mind because technically they are different and the implication of the differences in technique are different. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, but how often do you see systemic chemo side effects like alopecia? Well, we have actually a paper that is in press in radiology, and it's about 15% of the patient population. And Dr. Finn, what about the issue of systemic therapy following TACE? One of your options here was serafinib. If you do that, do you tend to do it after the first TACE, after the second? And how do you integrate it together, and how do you decide upon whether you're going to do it? I think it would be offered after optimal local control. Liver cancer is very unique. It likes the liver. I mean, how many malignancies do we see that present with an 11.5 centimeter primary that hasn't metastasized? So I think there is strong evidence that local control is important, optimized local control, and then adding in the serafinib after that. However, the discussion for me or the decision points are how well are they doing after these embolizations? And then discussing with the patient that right now, your disease, quote-unquote, is controlled, you're at high risk for relapse, is there a role for serafinib? And I'm going to guess, like in a lot of oncology situations, if, for example, this man had been 55, no comorbidities, and didn't have the post-taste syndrome the way he explained it, and was like grabbing your lapels like, what else I can do? Would that likely have led to serafinib? Yeah, and I think mostly his medical issues that you described. And that comes up in patients post-resection now, as well now post-transplant. Right. And I guess we'll get into that, but just since you brought it up, I mean, do you think it's a consideration off-study in those two situations? I think, without a doubt, there is a randomized study planned for patients post-resection or post-radiofrequency ablation, but the scientific rationale is there to use it in that setting. So you've done it in a non-protocol setting? Yes. Yeah, it's really, you know, we see this debated in a lot of different tumors. Dr. O'Neill, do you think that's something that's reasonable or maybe a little stretching things too far? I think that's an excellent research question. There are many issues with putting patients on adjuvant therapies where there's no proof. And we don't even have proof of concept yet for VEGF 
agents. I think I would be much more confident about doing that if, for example, the colon cancer study with bevacizumab turns out to be positive. That's then we'd at least have some real proof that the idea that an anti-angiogenic therapy is a good adjuvant therapy is true. We don't have that yet. Here you're making a very big stretch with a drug that's not highly toxic, but does have some toxicity. I guess I'm too conservative to do that. And of course, I guess we are going to have that answer in colon cancer within a year. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to be interpreted if it is positive. One comment I had was, if we embark on the issue of starting sorafenib after taste, which I'm a strong advocate for that, but I'm saying that there are a lot of things that need to be resolved. For example, how long do you keep the patients on sorafenib? Do you give them a six-month course? Do you keep them until they progress? What if they progress? Do you retaste them first before you start them on sorafenib? So there are a lot of issues, I think, that need to be resolved before we start putting these patients on sorafenib, you know? I don't know. I mean, that's the question, is that, you know, do we have long-term data on the effect of sorafenib on patients' quality of life or whatever? We don't. What we do you do in that. your own practice right now? I would not. I would probably watch them very carefully like we do, you know, every three months imaging and make sure they don't have a recurrence. If they do, we retreat. Dr. Gamblin? So our group is giving sorafenib on protocol the day following the first taste. Hmm. It goes straight through the next subsequent tastes. There's six tastes planned every two months. So they'll have sorafenib for a year while they receive chemoembolization. If they progress, they're off protocol. But if they don't need chemoembolization all these times... Well, that's the question. How do you determine who needs it, I guess? That's clear. I mean, that's been well... I mean, I think the difference between doing sequential tastes on a regimen, on a rigid regimen, meaning like, you know, you do three tastes within a six-month period or six within a year, has been abandoned. I think people now do tastes on demand, meaning if you see a response, whether it is a biological response or imaging response, then you stop. Because I totally agree. I mean, someone mentioned earlier that imaging response may not correlate with survival... But if you have a complete responder using ESOL, then the survival is greatly prolonged. There's no question about that. I agree that if you don't see a response, it does not necessarily mean that you won't see a prolongation survival. Right, and if you don't see a complete response, I think is one of the keys you just said, because right. I think if you still see hypervascular tumor there, then but you, you, can, can, be you can certainly make a case to treat that patient and continue you treatment. Could, I think it's far from clearly defined as well, far as who would that's, say that's, this is not an indication to complete some more treatment in this patient. So how many patients have gone through or in this study so far? Oh, we just opened it last week. We put two patients on last week. It's brand new. Just wow. Opened. So this is going to be... Single a, site, single arm, open label, seraphinib taste combined. And any toxicity data that you have right now about this approach? No. But the idea is you're going to try to keep it, the seraphina going right through the taste. Correct. How does and we've done it, on, like Richard said, a couple of times on, you know, off of protocol kind of things for patients. We've done it with yttrium a couple of times. But you're not giving seraphina before the first taste. We're not. So what that, I mean, you can make an argument for either way. You could say, why don't well, you start it first and well, block angiogenic Well, responses. yeah, but that's the whole point, right? I mean, the whole concept of starting seraphina, we were just talking about that because they have a study at UCLA as well, is to actually prevent that VGF peak, you know? And so... It makes sense to give seraphinib on board beforehand. The think tank used these three cases as an initial platform that typifies the challenges of disease management, and the succeeding cases explored many other issues in management of the disease. Dr. Tholoveth continued the discussion by commenting on the current face of HCC in the United States and internationally. In the United States, if Hopkins is a reflection of a tertiary care center, most patients present with advanced cirrhosis and liver cancer. And hepatitis C is perhaps the most common cause. If we look at UNOS data, 
about 60 to 70 percent of patients with liver cancer will have hepatitis C as the primary etiology. In Asia, it is very different. You see more hepatitis B. And in Europe, you see a mixed population of hepatitis C and alcohol as the common factors. Another factor we often discuss is the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and obesity. These are probably important risk factors too. In our institution, at least 80% of our population are not candidates for either resection or liver transplantation. So the options will be either TASE, RFA, or some combination of these treatments. 